Welcome to the Outside Right podcast. Welcome to the Football Travel Podcast from Outside Right. I'm editor Chris Lee and coming up in this episode. I think QPR is the example, is the flag bearer for how money doesn't buy you success. That's QPR pod founder David Fraser talking about the goings on at Queen's Park Rangers. So yeah, the, the football club forms a huge part of, of the identity of the area and the people are extremely proud of what the football club is. And we catch up with Madrid-based football analyst Paul Reedy to find out more about the city's third club, Rayo Vallecano. Enjoy. The Outside Right podcast. I'm joined by David Fraser, who is the founder of QPR Pod. Welcome, David. Hello. So it's a QPR fan pod, and just in the interest of disclosure, Queen's Park Rangers is also my team. Um, how would you describe the club, its fans, its culture? Well, we are a West London football team. We are It's extremely competitive, actually, um, kind of the football landscape in London in particular. I don't even know how many professional teams there are in London. But QPR is, is in the borough of Hammersmith and Fulham, and I think there's four clubs just there. So it's, it's I guess, inner-city-ish London club, long traditions. We've always, I feel we've always been everybody's second favourite football team. I don't know if you think that. Certainly up until the last few years, it's gone a a, a little bit sour probably in terms of the club's image in the last few years but mm. generally likeable in the heart of West London um, and have all, we, we have a reputation perhaps latent but a reputation nonetheless for playing uh, good free-flowing football I would like to think. Yeah and going back to the point about the second it was second team they were very popular very attractive uh, blue and white hoops and obviously you know in the 70s were a very very glamorous side but the one of the things that that you mentioned there was the money and that's kind of what I must admit what kind of put me off the club when it rebranded and I know it's gone back to the original brand but um, original design of the logo for example but did QPR kind of become like the um, the Man City or the Chelsea of the championship and kind of despite a lot of money being put into the club the last few years it's probably below its natural aggregate position of maybe between 50 and 30th in the country bottom half of the Prem top half of the championship what's gone wrong more importantly uh, what can be put right well I think it's probably a bit disingenuous to describe us as the uh, championship equivalent of Chelsea and Man City because that would assume that we've had some success. Which <laughs> talk about money, yeah. <laughs> where um, that was uh, invested in. Uh, you know, well, which we haven't. Well, relatively, I think QPR is the example, is the flag bearer for how money doesn't buy you success because we've had a, a, a couple of very high profile. Um, rich owners. We are currently owned by Tony Fernandez. Um, he's our majority owner, who is a very rich Malaysian businessman. But also, the other minority stake is owned by um, the richest man in the UK, Lakshmi Mittal. Before that, Flavio Briatori and Bernie Eccleston ran, uh, owned the club. Very wealthy men. And we haven't had the necessary success that you would assume would go along with that. So if anything is an example that money doesn't buy you success, QPR is it. Talk about the money then. Where has it gone wrong? Well, because there was an assumption that money buys you success, and that's not true. And I don't think that's true in football generally. I think the fundamentals have got to be right. You look at Man United, the richest club in the world. They have unlimited resources, but as soon as their long-term coach, Alex Ferguson, with whom they had you know, a couple of decades of success goes, the success kind of fell off a cliff almost overnight for them. The fundamentals about football are good coaches with good players and sticking the ball in the back of the net. And everything else can be built 
uh, around that. You have to get those right. QPR went the wrong way about it. They threw money at it. Um, rather than actually recruiting good coaches with a good internal football system and philosophy. So I think where it went wrong was, I don't know if you, if you can say they put the cart before the horse or whatever, but they had the money in place before they had the football in- infrastructure. Hopefully they're fixing that now, but um, it's been a long time coming. Okay, and at the time of speaking, I mean, Loftus Road in, in London W12 is a... A nineteen thousand capacity stadium. It's quite a cozy little ground. There's lots of old. It's quite old school. There's pylons in the way. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of the place. Lots of restricted view seats. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for the, I mean, there's rumours of a new ground um, further out towards sort of Uxbridge Way or even Wormwood Drive. But I can't remember exactly. Can Can you give me the latest on that? Changes every week. They have been talking about building a site on Old Oak Common, uh, which is quite a big development area that's been earmarked by um, the Mayor and the City of London Corporation and all those kinds of bodies. They're now talking about building a site on what's called uh, an athletic stadium, which is called the Linford Christie Stadium, named after. Limpa Christie, the the 100 metre runner obviously. Who's local to that area. Who's local to the area. Um, They have they really do need to get out of Loftus Road. It's a lovely ground as you know it's sort of got its own charming identity Mm. but the everything about it is restrictive and I think you know lots of football clubs have shown that they achieve growth through having appropriate stadium and I think QPR recognise now that that's the next step for them. I think a good example of that would be Southampton, which the Dell was a kind of 17,000 capacity stadium. They moved to a bit of a bucket arena, but it's, it's, it's doing wonders and good coaches. Without the money, with a great youth setup, they seem to be doing really well. Well, even, you know, we are talking in the week where um, Saturn United have played an FA Cup tie with Arsenal, and they're a non league team, and they. They, even in their small way, they have found new ways to what they call monetizing their ground. You know, traditionally, football grounds are used one day in a fortnight, and so therefore they're kind of ridiculous white elephants. Mm. Sutton United, who played Arsenal, installed a 3G pitch mm. two years ago, which means they can hire that out to the community. It's a constant source of income, and it's a pitch that's in use seven days a week. Mm. I think the better facilities you have, the more you can have conferences and schools and, and all sorts of things. So. Mm-hmm. This is that's the future for football clubs. Really, is multi-purpose stadiums that help them bring in income seven days a week. Sure, uh, Maidstone United and Worthing amongst those of the three G pitch, and I guess uh, we've got an example just over the river from where we are, the Emirates Stadium and yes. Conference Facility. Yes. Um, but it's very much on the European model, where you know you have community stadiums that are good for various different sports. But anyway, we digress. Loftus Road, great atmosphere um, for the visitor to London from the rest of the UK or overseas. Why should they come to Loftus Road? Because you'll get in, first of all. Yes, that's true. Um, <laughs> the tickets are re- relatively affordable. I mean, you can argue over whether it's 30 quid, 25 quid, 30 quid for a ticket is is affordable, but it's certainly competitive. With it's cheaper than Millwall. Cheaper than a lot of other places. Um, the standard of football is good. And, you know, the atmosphere is great at QPR. It's a really tight ground. It's a real sort of traditional ground, I would say. And I would recommend the experience to anyone. And don't just follow the kind of Arsenal's, Chelsea's, Man United's. Come down and see a proper London club. Excellent. Now, get away from the mainstream. Uh, you, you're in the loft, aren't you? Loft upper or lower? On the loft Behind upper. the goal on the right-hand side as you look on TV. Yes, I am. And uh, that's where sort of most of the hardcore... I, I tend to sit in the Ellerslie Road, if I can. Um, yeah because, you know, you still get the P, Q and R blocks who yeah. are kind of giving a bit of noise. Um, but, yeah, so overseas visitors, there's, there's, like I said, you'll get in, you, you can book easily online, pick your own seat, 
um, and and even see your own view of where you go. So yeah. it's a pretty good experience. Actually. Well, I would also say the QPR fan community is actually very close and very welcoming. And there'll be, you know, if anybody's not heard of QPR before, you just kind of look online, really. And there's all sorts of fan clubs as far away as sort of Australia, Thailand, South Korea. And whenever people come to Loftus Road, they're always welcomed. You kind of just find a few people on Twitter, send them a tweet saying, I'm coming to the game, who's around. There's some good fan pubs in and around the ground where people congregate. And I think most people will be made to feel welcome. So I would highly recommend it. Some excellent shopping nearby as well. So um, where can people find you online and obviously QPR pod? Yeah, so we do a QPR fans podcast. We record that every Monday. Um, in the season where we talk about usually their previous weekend's game what's coming up and we often have an interview with either a past or present player Uh, you can listen to our old episodes on our website which is qprpod.co.uk or follow us on twitter at qprpod david thank you very much for your time no problem the outside right podcast My guest is Paul Reedy, who's a Madrid-based analyst. Welcome, Paul. Uh, good morning, Chris. And thanks for joining us. Um, just briefly introduce us to yourself and what, what you're doing in Madrid. Uh, I've been in Madrid for 14 years now. Um, uh-huh. I originally moved over uh, with the music industry. I, I worked in London previously for Universal Music, and I was fortunate to get a, uh, a move to Madrid um, back in 2003. Um, music industry, obviously, is... is, is suffering a, a global crisis and, and, and especially so in Spain. So I was made redundant back in 2011. And then you're, then you're faced with the dilemmas like, you know, I've got, I've got this kind of you know, shelf life of a career left. What do I do? Um, and music and football have always been my two interests. And I was like, well, I've done the music side and I've, I've kind of, you know, finished, finished with that. So I kind of explored a, um, a path in, in, in football and, and obviously Spanish football being, being what it is, uh, managed to knock on a few doors and some doors close in your face, but a few doors open and I managed to get a position working with uh, Diario As, which is one of Spain's four daily uh, newspapers. And I work in the As English side of that. Uh, brilliant. So we're here to talk about Probably Madrid's third club, Rayo Vallecano, from from the southern suburbs. Um, I, I loved it when I lived in Madrid. I, I, we used to pop down there. It's a three-sided stadium, a famous red stripe, which I believe is based on the River Plate kit that people may know. That's They've right. had former players include people like Laurie Cunningham, Victor Notka, Raul Bravo, Swansea legend Michu, um, Casey Keller. Um, what, what's the appeal to you of Rayo Vallecano? Why did you become a, a watcher? You could you could add Mark Draper to that list too. Oh, really? uh, Aston Villa. He was Rio very very briefly. Yeah. Um, by the way, when I'm speaking this morning, I'm speaking as a Rio uh, Vallecano supporter, not as a, an, an ass English representative. Um, my first contact with Rio was back in the in the in the sort of the mid '90s, Chris. Um, I went over to Madrid from London on a football uh, football weekend playing against Spanish teams, yeah. and a, fr- a friend of mine was based here at the time. And this is you have to remember back in the '90s when there was no internet or the internet was just about sort of emerging Mm. certainly there was certainly no mass media coverage of spanish football over and beyond real madrid barcelona and atletico madrid um and i think world soccer then was probably the only kind of mouthpiece that 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 reached fans of of global football or international football that wanted to dig that little bit deeper and i remember constantly seeing rio vaikano's results in the page and i was you know i didn't know where they were from i didn't know that i didn't even know they were based in madrid so we came to madrid that for, for that particular weekend the the football weekend and my friend who was based here at the time said oh yeah there's the other teams in madrid like rio vaikano and they've got this kind of as you mentioned, the shirt with the with the red sash, which straight away evoked Peru 1978. 
even though it is actually inspired by by River Plate. Mm. Um, and I was out that day some free time and I went into uh, an El Corte Inglés which is one of the the main um, stores here and I, and I saw the shirt and I thought oh it was 5,000 pesetas at the time I thought I'll, I'll, I'll buy the shirt um, so to cut a long story short we were due back in London on the Monday we missed our flight we had to stay an extra night in Madrid I had nothing else to wear and I thought ah I've got that shirt I can wear that shirt so during the whole evening I was walking around the streets of Madrid a foreigner uh, with a Rio shirt on and this is obviously pre the day of mass market replica shirts mm. and, 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 it, and it, it turned a lot of heads and we were in bars and we were talking and people heard the foreign accent and they were, they were coming over and saying, what, what do you want to drink? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, you're, you, you like Rio and you're, you're not from here. So straight away you can see that this, 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 this resonated with a lot of people, that, mm. that the, the kind of curiosity value of a foreigner wearing a Rio shirt. So yeah, the next time I came back to Madrid, subsequently met a, a Spanish girl at the time and, and uh, we, we started this long distance relationship where I'd come back uh, to Madrid every every once a month from London and I always used to tie it in with, with Rio games and, and yeah my first experience down at Vallecas was a I think Rio were in the second division at the time and I and I stood in the Fonda which is the only end of the three-sided ground and I just and I just remember again you know like I say back in a time where football travel wasn't so popular it wasn't so common and and people were sharing food with me at halftime giving me their little kind of glasses of wine or the wine they had or whatever and it was just it was a real level of acceptance from the off there was no kind of hesitance about who is this strange guy why is he on our side what's he doing what's his what's his agenda there was there was a huge level of open arm uh, reception it was, it was, and that straight away got me in so yeah since that since that time i've, I've followed the club i've um then obviously subsequently moved to Madrid. The first thing I did was get a season ticket, and um, yeah, and I've followed Rio in the last. Uh, well, obviously since I since I first came and fell in love with him, if you like, but uh, obviously more closer when I moved to Madrid. Go to away games, go to pretty much every home game, and uh, I kind of have become over time more actively involved in in the kind of the social side of of. of the supporters and and how we feel about what's happening in the club and taking a bit more interest in the running of the club. Yeah, and we'll come to the supporters in a moment, but just like rather like Glasgow Celtic, maybe FC St. Pauli of Hamburg, who I've spoken to on a previous podcast, AS Livorno and various others around Europe, Rio's got that cult status now um, that seems to attract left-wing activists. Is that a fair comment? And I, I know it's come from the working-class district of Madrid. They used to tell me that. But... Um, there's other. I mean, most football clubs are working class. Why, why is kind of um, Rio Vallecano trying to stand out and become this kind of? I'm not say I'm reticent to say hipster club, but you know what I mean. How come they've got that? Yeah, kind of no, I mean, I, I think Rio were were named in. I think the I think it was a Barry Glendening and the Guardian did a, a top five hipster clubs in in the world, and I think you had the likes. Obviously, St. Pauli were in there. Portland Timbers were there, and and Rio were in there too. Um, Rio come as you mentioned, they come from this area of Madrid that was originally housed uh, immigrants who came from other areas of Spain in sort of post, I would say the 20s, 30s, after the Civil War. And um, it was always on the outskirts of the city. And obviously, as the city has grown, it's become, it's kind of been swallowed up by the city of Madrid and the and, mm. and constant growth of Madrid. But it still has, has always maintained a unique identity. Um, it's the only area of the city that's never been under rule of the right-wing party. It was always a huge pocket of resistance during the Franco, Franco era and the post-Civil War era um, for, for, for protests, for, for even riots or whatever. And there's a there's a there's a clear difference. There's a there's a, a bridge that you cross when you leave, if you like, central Madrid and move into Vallecas, the area, the barrio of Vallecas. And the minute you cross that bridge, things change. There's a different perception around um, the posters on the wall are all posters with a with a political message. Um, 
of, of, of very left-winging uh, direction. There's post, uh, posters about marches against uh, cuts in education, cuts in social services. Um, so straight away you feel that you're in an area that's very politicized. Um, and Vallecas, you know, by, by its own admission, is not the most glamorous area of Madrid. I mean, there's no, there's no classic old um, uh, Moorish-inspired architecture or anything like that. I mean, it's it's a pretty pretty rough and ready area. Um, and right in the heart of it, you've got this football stadium uh, that belongs to a team who, you know, in, in the last five years, we're in the, we're in the top flight. I mean, a team who've who's who's been projected into homes around the world. So yeah, the, the football club forms a huge part of of the identity of the area, and the people are extremely proud of what the football club is, and the football club and its supporters by default tap into the politics and the social kind of conscientiousness of of the neighbourhood. So they're kind of one and uh, one and the other. Mm. And um, what is the experience like at Rio? I mean, if you're a season ticket holder, um, how much do you pay for a season ticket? How much was the day day ticket like? Can you get in quite easily? Um, where should you stand? All that sort of thing. Yeah, my season ticket costs, I think, €315, Euro, which oh, wow. I think certainly compared to, to UK season ticket prices is, is fantastically good value. And that, that actually came down because we, you know, the, the season ticket prices are very elastic. And obviously, if you get promotion to the first division, they'll go up, but they won't go up massively. Uh, but that's in line with Spain, Chris. I mean, that's not, Rio's not unique in that way. I think season ticket prices generally in, in Spanish football are, are far more competitively priced than they are um, certainly in the English leagues. I sit in the lateral, which is the side. Um, you can buy a match day ticket for for anything from fifteen to maybe thirty five euro, forty five euro, which is again, it's not not particularly expensive. Um, the place to stand, if if you want the real hardcore atmosphere, is obviously the fondo, which is the end behind the goal. Tickets are difficult to get for that that area because it's it's that's the area where the Bucaneros, which is the Rio Ultra groups, um, are 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 positioned. So I think there's only maybe a, like a hundred, hundred and fifty tickets that are. That, that are actually commercially put on, put on sale for each game, um, but yeah, the experience is, is the match day experience. I mean, I think I think every fan will say that the, the match day experience of their club is special and it's unique and it's different. But so many friends of mine have come over from from England or from Ireland, and a lot of them want to go to the Bernabeu because they want to see the you know the sort of the, the glamour football or whatever. And I always say to them, I will take you to the Bernabeu, but you have to come to Vallecas with me to see a Rio game that weekend. So they kind of they they they, they agree to the terms, and the, to a man, not one of them has come back and said that. The atmosphere at the Bernabeu, which is particularly generally regarded as a very poor atmosphere, mm. but they come back and they're actually they they're just they're just so fired up by how good the atmosphere is at Bayekas, where you have maybe nine thousand people making ten times far more noise and passion than the, than the seventy nine thousand at the Bernabeu. I mean, the Buccaneers are, are are and Rio fans in general are are known around Spain for their for their passion for the team and for their sort of you know the way they get behind the team through thick and thin and. With Rio, there's far more thin than there is thick, Chris. Uh, yes, I imagine. I mean, th- has that changed since the 90s? Because I remember standing quite easily in the Fondo and there not being that much um, of an atmosphere then. It was quite kind of family-oriented, as you said at the beginning of the programme. The Buccaneer is a new thing? Buccaneer started in 1992, um, and they, they, they've grown. And as obviously, you know, the, the ultra-movement within Spanish football certainly uh, was 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 in its uh, ascendancy through the 90s. So I think it attracted a lot of people then, and... and you know, it's. It, I think. I think anybody who knows a lot about Spanish football fan culture will know of Bucaneros and will know of that they stand for. They're they're not just football supporters. They're they're sort of active, you know, campaigners if you want to call them. But they're they're people who who are hugely concerned of what happens in in the area of Vallecas, what happens in the city of Madrid. Um, always very uh, um, 
make that make their presence feel and any any protests about cuts in education cuts in in social things about protests against the government protests against you know um wars in in places where we have no business to to start to start wars that kind of thing so yeah they're 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 certainly more than just a a, a conglomerate of football supporters and anyone that's lived in spain knows there are an awful lot of protests a lot of the time yeah yeah i mean i mean that's one thing spanish people do is like when, yeah. when i mean and that's, that's one of the things that you, you see when you live in london for so long is the passivity of so many people to accept you know a substandard underground constant uh, increases in fair prices and you know everybody complains to each other but nobody complains as a kind of a uh, as a group and you know i've seen protests now against brexit and i've seen protests against the 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 various wars in Iraq which, since I moved away, and they're refreshing to see that you know that the protest can make it make a difference, and and certainly Spanish people believe in that, and and and, and you know I think every weekend in Madrid there's you see the, uh, there's areas in the centre cut off because there's a protest about X, Y, and Z. Um, but yeah, I mean people people have a voice, and the collective voice is a powerful tool. So how are Rayo doing this season in La Segunda, the second division? Yeah, so after five years in the top flight which is a record in our in our history uh under the the tutelage of, of Paco Hemeth who was um looking back was a was a fabulous manager who was was made, able to to make the club tick on on a shoestring budget uh on players who came in on loan the likes of uh Diego Costa um people like Javi Fuego people like Michu who as you previously mentioned who've gone on to to better things um kept us in the top flight for five seasons um that policy i think of of confecting a new team every season will only take you so far and, and, um, yeah, and yeah, on the last day of last season we 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 got relegated but despite the relegation the president decided that we keep the same team and we have the highest uh wage salary in the second division mm. so we've got first division players who've made the drop down to the second division um and they they just they're not prepared for you know the different type of football that is Segunda Division. Um, it's a far more robust, it's a far more physical style game, less um, less sort of a neat passing type football, um, and and quite clearly they're not they're not up for the fight. Uh, we're struggling at the wrong end of the table. We've gone through two coaches this season already with Jose Ramon Sandoval. Uh, and then Ruben Baraja was was sacked on Monday. Ruben Baraja, obviously the former fabulous Valencia midfielder, who just failed to 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 kind of to transmit any kind of passion or any kind of. I mean, I, I, we always remember Baraja as being a, a real domineering force in the central of the the Valencia midfield. He didn't take that 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 presence or that kind of um, impact to the, to the to the coaching style of the of, of 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 things and yeah we struggled and we're struggling and i mean there's there is a fear that we may even get relegated to segunda b where you know it's, just, it's the third tier of spanish football we've been there before um and it's, it's it's yeah you're into regional football um and you're not part of the kind of the la liga top two tiers anymore so you're really you're really you know it, it's, it's known here in spain as el pozo which is the well i it's, it's easy to get into easy to get into and very very difficult to get out of so yeah there's a genuine fear chris that we may get relegated um oh dear. And, and yeah and that's another thing that's going to really wrangle with the supporters if we if we do drop down another tier um brilliant well thank you so much it's really insightful um introduction for a lot of people of the rio Vallecano. so where can people find you online where can they connect with you on twitter etc yeah i have a twitter account chris and uh, and a lot of what happens at rio um I talk about and other areas of, of governance in Spanish football. Um, you know uh, what's happening in terms of how La Liga are 
behaving towards supporters and, and general sort of supporters' uh, concerns and interests within Spanish football. Uh, the Twitter account is at Paul Reedy, that's R-E-I-D-Y, 6-7, Spanish football, and it's governance is, is my main kind of thing and with a special focus on Rio Vallecano Brilliant Paul Reedy thanks so much and good luck to Rio for the rest of the season Cheers Chris thank you very much Thanks for listening to the Football Travel Podcast from Outside Right produced by 8 Moon Media you can find us online at Outside Right W-R-I-T-E dot co dot UK or on Twitter Facebook and Instagram at Outside Right until next time thanks for listening bye